welcome to The Science of Fiction. Uh, as normal, if you have any questions for me or any of our other presenters, send them into studio at calafem.co.uk or send them in through the web form if you're listening online. Today I'm joined by Will Thompson once again. Hello, how's it going? And um, Dore Carrier. Hello, everybody. Did I pronounce that right? You did indeed. Brilliant, that's great. Having corresponded by email, it's always a bit worrying when you suddenly realise you're live on air and have to get the name right. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about gothic literature or late is it late gothic literature uh, late uh, victorian gothic literature uh, based in the uk and that means we'll be finding all about the science of vampires buffy and other such things i suppose well buffy a little later than the victorian period a, a little later than the victorian period but you know the the first buffy film like we we can certainly talk about the original you know it's definitely there. So, um, do you want to just introduce yourself a bit, why you know about um, the late Victorian Gothic literature? Which seems quite niche, to be honest. Okay, I, uh, I worked a lot on the uh, Victorian uh, period uh, when I was doing my degree. Um, and I specialised in the Victorian Gothic horror uh, over the second and third years of my English history degree at Cambridge. Uh, that's my main area of expertise. Um, I know about the more topical elements of Gothic horror through interest rather than expertise. So you did your degree in what you're interested in rather than being forced to. Absolutely. That's the best way to do it. Anyway, I think what we'll do is we'll um, rush straight into the first track and um, I'll let you explain why you picked it. We are brought forth unto this world with nothing. And with nothing we depart. So I commend this body to the ground with loving remembrance. <laughs> Earth to earth. Ashes to Thank you. 
explain that one? Okay, uh, that's a song called Very Alive by a band called Venom. And I picked that mainly because being very alive was an incredibly important fear in the Victorian period, uh, which we can see being transposed across into Victorian Gothic uh, horror. Uh, obviously, with uh, the vampire theme, the concept of being buried alive, uh, being uh, trapped in a tomb when one was originally alive, uh, is something that seems to have reached an a uh, very important stage in Victorian in the Victorian period in that it was a fear throughout the ages um, but was well did the vampire thing come first or it's a, were people afraid of being buried alive because they thought they might be buried as the undead or were they afraid or was the undead thing kind of uh, no the, the undead uh, aspect of this was seems to have uh, come in a little bit later um, it, it actually seems that the scientific fear of being buried alive uh, came about earlier than the fear of being buried and becoming one of the undead um, so in the Victorian period uh, a couple of phrases were uh, were defined uh, one of which is taphophobia which is the scientific phrase for fear of being buried alive um, the important kind of medical aspect of this was uh, catalepsy uh, which is a particular Victorian syndrome they had, um, they had a lot of questionable syndromes absolutely uh, however this is one that has some bearing in kind of what we understand of medical syndrome at the time however it seems to have been applied to a large number of medical disorders um, but it's basically a coma like syndrome in which the individual looks like they're dead but actually isn't um, which you can then look at uh, the, the sort of sleeping sicknesses in the early 20th century that the individual's heart rate slows their breathing slows they look, it's a kind of living death but obviously that that's not actually a condition it's just a combination of syndromes that right. was at the time formulated into a sort of horrific you know it, it was it was One used in a term of gothic horror right and i guess particularly since in a world where there was no way to you didn't have ecgs or whatever so it was people who people were going based on human observation um you would presumably wouldn't be possible to distinguish between all the different all the different reasons why someone could be in some kind of comatose, apparently dead state. Uh, absolutely, and um, a, a lot of people at the time were using various interesting ways to uh, d make sure that they were actually dead at the time, so... Guillotines? Pardon? Gu guillotines, axes? Stabbings uh, through no. the heart? Uh, absolutely, uh, and um, we we will uh, lead on to this in the next song that comes up. But uh, but some individuals did uh, decide that they would prefer to have their heads cut off or their
the heart removed, which I'm sure we can all identify as sort of vampire motifs, mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that the question was resolved one way or the other before they were actually buried. <laughs> were they normally buried with their hearts? Because you know, I, was, I was thinking, you know, this, this is sort of vaguely reminiscent of Egyptian burials, where all the organs being removed and put in jars, although, of course, that was for different reasons. Well, that also, one thing I was wondering is, I might be wrong, but I thought Catholicism of the time suggested you didn't want to mutilate the body, because if you mutilated it, it would be mutilated in heaven. Yes, and um, th this was one of the reasons that, um, uh, sorry, um, being um, burned after death, uh, the, um, the the process of reducing the body to ashes uh, was seen as a, a non-religious uh, response to, to burial rather than simply a healthful response to, you know, potentially the body being stolen, the body being dismembered after death. Um, and so it was thought to be preferable for religious reasons to be burnt than to be buried, or all the reverse? No, I'm saying that uh, those people who actually had the uh, the health reasons uh, in their mind uh, oh. decided that actually being burnt after death was, most uh, was a more useful way of disposing of the corpse. But before religious reasons, it was illegal until uh, fairly late on. So, um, so, so instead they removed their hearts? Yes. Okay, well, you know, it's, it's a loophole. I, think. I recently came across something, it's, it's kind of related, it's to do with um, bodies. Did you know that Oliver Cromwell's head took forever to get to its current burial place? What, has it been sort of on, on some kind of um, Olymp Olympic torch-style pilgrimage around the country? Yeah, literally. So, <laughs> um, the death of Oliver Cromwell on the... So I'm just reading Wikipedia, on the 3rd of September in 1658. So that's when he died. Yet his head only made it to be buried in Cambridge um, in, some, in the, in the 19, 1960, that's it. What? So um, basically, because the king, when he came back, wasn't too happy with him, killed him. They took his head off, put it on a spike in London. It then fell down in the wind. <laughs> so then someone grabbed it because it's worth a bit of money. But then everyone assumed that whoever had grabbed it was a criminal. Uh, and try and uh, sympathise with Cromwell, so he hid it for a while, and it's all got passed around. And yeah, then there's this great picture on uh, Wikipedia of the um, master of the college holding the head in his hands when it gets delivered somewhere. Um, so you can actually go and find this picture of the um, college receiving it. Uh, this is reminiscent of a man who. Sorry. I was just going to say for uh, for sort of good burial stories, uh, a fairly small range of stories I imagine um, Rossetti uh, buried some unpublished poems with I believe a wife that deceased him by a number of years um, and then uh, decided uh, sort of made up his mind that actually he'd like to have them published so had her body exhumed got the poems out and had them published and the, the, and the, po the paper hadn't decomposed some, some seven eight years later Crazy. Yeah, well, Cromwell's head looks pretty decomposed after, what was it, 400 years? <laughs> 300 years? Well, the, the, the passing a head around reminded me of someone recently um, in their will asked for their skull to be um, like cleaned of all the, the fleshy goo and then used uh, in a production of Hamlet. And so David Tennant's uh, recent performance as Hamlet involved this, this man's skull being the skull of York. 
That's a traditional one. It's a um, he was a composer, I believe, and oh, really? they decided to stop using his skull um, because they thought that people might go to the production just to see this famous composer's skull that he had left to the um, the playhouse. Oh, interesting. Um, despite the fact they were currently showing, I believe it was David Tennant and Patrick Stewart <laughs> in uh, in Hamlet. So okay, you know. so, so I have the story backwards. Yeah. It w- wasn't that Tennant <laughs> held it, it was that Tennant did not but, but, you know, obviously the uh, the composer was the more famous, you know, member that, that might be sullying the memory of... The, the, of the two people whose, whose names that we, we can remember, yeah. as opposed to the composer whose name we can't. Uh, we got a question in on the email. Uh, with catalepsy, uh, how is it known that people are buried alive, since you would have to have the bodies exhumed? From Bob. Don't know where Bob's from. Uh, okay, so so how is it known that the bodies were buried alive? Yeah. Well, yeah. at the time, um, there were an awful lot of reports of things like uh, the inside of the um, the inside of the coffins had nail marks inside them. Um, one of the other, I guess, urban legends almost was that tombs were opened up to place the in place in the wife of the husband who had died beforehand, for example, and the uh, the skeleton was found to be not inside the coffin, but to be in a sitting position inside the tomb. Um, Initially, catalepsy and burying people alive is is not these days considered to be an epidemic across Victoria and <laughs> London. Um, it's simply something that was very much feared socially at the time. It was it was huge popular fear. There is no greater sign these days that it actually happened than maybe one or two people were buried alive due to a horrible misunderstanding of science at the time but it, it certainly wasn't some kind of uh, epidemic of burial <laughs> so m- mostly mostly just the, go- the the ghost stories at the time you know people would tell their kids oh you know you got to go you got to be careful you know if I, if if i die check me because otherwise i'll come back and haunt you Woo. well no no it, it wasn't just an urban legend at the time or it wasn't just seen as an urban oh. legend at the time i mean scientific journals were producing sort of checklists of the way that you should test a corpse for um, signs of life before it was buried. Um, And you have to remember that at the time, we didn't have the same kind of understanding of basically what made a person alive or in a coma as we do these days. So so it it was more that it was a scientific concern, but it, it didn't happen that much, that much that somebody was actually buried alive. Are we still talking about an era when the um, Hipp- Hipp- Hippocratic sort of style of a four tumours was quite pronounced? The sort of ideas that you treat by balancing blood, the yellow bile, black bile, and the other one I can never remember. Um, no, not not really in this time. I mean, it's it's a legacy, uh, but you're looking at an era when understanding, uh, you know, you're you're even looking at an era when um, the myas uh, the myasmic theory is um, feeding out into an understanding of germ theory and um, you know cellular invasion you're not looking at a period where people are considering sort of yellow bile and black bile to be essential reasonable understandings of disease the only reason I ask because I know that that was still being taught doesn't mean of course it's being used at the early 1800s Okay, so we're, we're talking, you know, a, a jump of 90 years. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you, you're talking about quite a 
different period of history. Um, I guess this is the kind of area of scientific understanding where um, the changes like, changes are going to happen really dramatically when when so little is known that um, any kind of well, just a, a discovery which enables you know, new new means to analyze the situation will take effect in a matter of years as opposed to decades. So yeah, um, and, and you do also have to remember that germ theory was only being uh, accepted in the uh, 1880s, 1890s. It, how long that took to filter down into sort of school education I've, I really don't know how long that would take um, and you, you do have to remember that sort of school education it, it wasn't considered quite as swift as the way that we would treat sort of changes in sort of scholarly information these days but and it, it, I mean even 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 now people and use and people use decades old textbooks because to to, to you know, some approximation Although, you know, obviously, the, the, for the frontier of science changes quickly and the frontier of lots of areas of understanding change quickly, it's not different enough, at least now, to warrant changing everyone's textbooks every year. Uh, well, if, if, if any of our listeners have any opinions on that, if you think we should change our textbooks more often, maybe we should have all e-books and iPads to go on with it, um, then obviously email in, send it in through the online form. But I think it's a good time to take a break and go for the next track and uh, look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>
Science of Fiction, and that was a very nice and relaxing track, once again chosen by Dory. Okay, that was Birkenhair, what a horrible pair, by Screaming Demon, and um, I personally picked it because it was so appropriate for the Victorian day of Body Snatchers. So I take it Birkenhair were Body Snatchers in, in Victorian fiction? Well, or, or in Victorian fact? But Birkenhair were Body Snatchers in Victorian fact. And although they have become uh, the recognised pair of body snatchers, uh, as I'm sure everybody knows from the recent comedy film uh, about Birkenhair. Um, however, at the time, um, there was a, you know, there, there, there was an underclass of individuals who would dig up uh, corpses and sell them on to the medical profession, which obviously is an unsettling reason that uh, Gothic literature at the time showed a distrust of the medical profession because, you know, if your mum, dad, daughter or son was dug up by these uh, body snatchers and sold on to the medical profession for dissection, you probably would be a bit fearful of the medical profession yourself. Um, however, Beck and Hare were unique uh, in sort of theory and in uh, historical uh, legend because they murdered the individuals that they then sold on to the scientific community and have thus earned themselves a place in the historic legend. So it wasn't the case that one of them did the killing and then later on one of them dug up the body? It was just straight, you know, no, no messing around? No, uh, one of them sat on the chest of the poor individual and the other suffocated them after getting the individual drunk. I suppose a- any other method would probably like make, make, make the corpse not very useful for scientific study. I mean, you, can't, you, you couldn't use bladed weapons because, you know, then there'd be some of the dissection ahead of time. That would not be that Also, I think stab wounds raise questions of how you got the body. Yeah, I, I was uh, just walking along and I slipped and my knife went through. Well, you say that, but the uh, the doctor who took receipt of these surprisingly fresh corpses from <laughs> the two individuals did have some questions to answer where they said, well, how many, you know, amazingly fresh and surprisingly peaceful, you know, sort of bodies did you take from the global world? Eight, you know. Do you really get fresh corpses in the Victorian era? I mean, presumably these weren't people who had regular baths. Well, no, but, you know... Fresh as in dirty, <laughs> not fresh as in decomposing, I guess. Uh, well, I, w- I would say that, you know, fresh as in not decomposing and fresh as in not buried at all <laughs> would, would, you know, be a significant difference. Um, Maybe also, warm. still slightly inebriated and possibly smelling a little bit of ale would, would possibly, you know, ring a few alarm bells these days. But there was a um, suggestion, this is in sort of less... Uh, in more more recent news and so maybe less entertaining but in, in, interesting um, there was a exhibition that was t- toured a few years ago I think it was called Body, Body Works it was by a uh, German scientist and he um, I forget exactly how, how, he, how he did it but he would re- replace parts of he would, he would have there were cadavers and he would uh, somehow um, plasticize the vein structure of the body or you know or something else and sh- would show uh, intact 
um, like vein systems, but without the person around them. So it, it's kind of weird, skeletal. It, it, was, it was kind of it was creepy, really interesting, um, but um, a little bit creepifying. So I, I, I saw it was very interesting, but um, I saw sometime later there was some question as to where the cadavers had come from. Um, it was thought that maybe they'd come from uh, political prisons in um, repressive nations, which would be kind of unfortunate uh, as these things go. So yeah, it was um, Body Worlds, and oh, it was a travelling expedition of preserved human bodies and body parts prepared using a technique called plastination, plastination, um, to reveal the inner anatomical structure, and um, the guy was Gunther von Hagen, and um, yeah, so it toured around and um, had these body parts on show. I've seen where it made a brief appearance in one of the new Bond movies. Oh really, huh? Yeah, I think Bond runs through one of the exhibits. Literally through the person? No, no, it's um... <laughs> Oh, it'd be the Casino Roll they did recently, I think. Um, also, ironic, I believe these days you uh, you go on a long list of individuals if you sign up to be plasticized or whatever the term is. And they, they have too many people subscribing to the procedure. Oh, interesting. Okay, so... So, that so, so uh, at least these days it is sufficiently popular that there are too many people subscribing. Well, well you won't be buried alive. That's true. And, and I'm, I guess it's a, it's a good way to ensure that you know they'll check it. They'll check it. Sorry, you're dead. Um, I mean, it's, it's not so different for signing up from for organ donation, right? In but in in one case, you're you're, sign, you're signing up for um, like practical, like applied medical uses, but there is an or or perhaps for use in med, med school, but pop, like popular science and like exhibitions like that are probably. As valuable, at least in moderation. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the diff I think it's a lot more valuable to save a life than popular science expeditions. But oh, oh, of, co of course. But, but there is also a thing which comes up is um, apparently medical schools have a real problem getting cadavers now if they want to teach with real bodies. And so most medicine schools in the UK actually now use uh, synthetic solutions, so either computer or plastic models and things like that. And um, people who learn, I mean, Cambridge is one of the places that still use cadavers. Uh, it's such an advantage because bodies aren't quite the same as a rubber model. Well, this is uh, one of the things with Beck and Hare, the, uh, the song that I put on beforehand, um, in that uh, certainly at the time, um, anaesthetics were not widely used or widely understood, so speed was of the essence. If you were going mm. in to perform surgery, you had to know exactly what you were dealing with so you could get in and out, because dealing with a screaming, bleeding patient meant that, you know, you couldn't contemplatively look at somebody's you know, open-ended and go, well, I think what I need to do is close off this particular vein. You had to get in and out in the bare minimum of time, which meant that you had to be familiar intimately familiar with how somebody's innards work, which meant that you had to do an awful lot of work of dissection of human cadavers. And to get the human cadavers, you, need, you, you, you needed need. human cadavers, and given which and is where the enormous trade in freshly exhumed corpses comes from. And I guess given that... I I guess this wouldn't really encourage people to volunteer voluntarily donate their bodies uh, to medical science, particularly. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, legal. Oh, so th so th was there any legal way to get to get uh, a hold of the corpse? I'm well. I'm not a hundred percent sure on the legality of donation. Okay. Um, but most cadavers came from um, executed criminals. 
Okay, well that makes that, that, that makes a certain amount of sense. So I'm guessing this the answer to this question is probably no. So did the Victorians have donor cards in those days over email? <laughs> guessing not. No, I didn't. Uh, one thing which is quite interesting, going back to the uh, medical science today with cadavers, is one of the other problems. If you use synthetic alternative to a real body, is that a lot of people aren't the same. So it's useful to use lots of to use real bodies because the bits that veins which are in the wrong place and things like that, you start to learn which ones are the unreliable ones to be where they're meant to be and which things are in the same place. Because huh. bodies don't grow perfectly to blueprint. Hmm, interesting. So having having some variety from uh, real corpses uh, lets you yeah, get, get, get a handle on how wide the variation is. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a much more real experience. And of course, there's also the fact that real corpses are incredibly messy compared to a synthetic plastic thing. But I suppose maybe they use tomato ketchup alternatives in such things. So you, you, mentioned, a, you mentioned a film featuring these, these two unsavory characters, which I, I don't think I'd heard of. Well, I haven't heard of. Uh, was it, was it, were they kind of bit characters and something else? Or was it all about them? No, there, there's a relatively modern film called Buck and Hare or something similar. It has Simon Pegg as one of the title characters. Huh. Uh, I must admit, I haven't seen it, but I've certainly seen the, the trailers for it, and it seemed to be a, a big, hitting, rollicking comedy, which yeah, somewhat I mean, surprised me. <laughs> I mean, I guess Simon Pegg had the, isn't, has a kind of a record of kind of macabre uh, humour. Oh. I'm a fan of the black comedy, and admittedly, uh, the the characters of uh, sort of grave robbers or grave diggers uh, are sort of blackly comic throughout history. I mean, you you know you can look at Shakespearean or Renaissance sort of grave diggers, and they're they're frequently the blackly comic characters within uh, a tragedy, but it was a little unusual. It seemed like quite a broad sort of farce, which seemed. A strange way of approaching a, a grave digging pair, but uh, so well, yeah, a murdering grave digging pair, but so yeah, it came out in 2010. Yeah. Oh. And the black comedy about two 19th century grave robbers who find a lucrative business providing cadavers for an Edinburgh for Edinburgh Medical School. It's just, it's not a I suppose it, it is the murder bit that that I find concerning. You, you well, might have spoiled it, the, the plot now. Uh, I have, have I spoiled that? Yeah, I, I do apologise, like everybody. <laughs> like the fact that um, the Titanic sinks in the movie Titanic. And sp spoiler alert, yeah. Sweeney Todd murders people. <laughs> right, well, if we have spoiled the movie on, feel free to complain to studio at camofm.co.uk or send in any questions you have. You can also send it through the live player. And um, we'll see if we get a more peaceful track on the next track. I don't know what this next one is. <laughs>
Well, I think it's it's a little more complicated than simply taking, um, oh, sure. y- you know, sort of uh, religious aspects. I, I think it's kind of a three-pronged fork that uh, you're looking at. Um, you're looking at scientific aspects that that suddenly become, you know, th- this is the reality for people reading this book. So so it adds a certain immediacy to horror. You know, you, you're not talking about things that go bump in the night. You're talking about something that is almost a reality for the people reading these books. It, it sort of adds a, a certain amount of immediacy for somebody reading it. Then you've got the spiritual side of things, which is obviously, you know, the, even these days when you're looking at sort of... Uh, fictional horror you, you still have a certain spiritual aspect mm-hmm, right. and then you've got the third prong which is uh, you know traditional myths so you know vampires uh, werewolves ghosts the, these are all traditional myths but but you've got the three prongs coming together in Victorian literature in a way that I don't think you've seen previously. You know, that, that scientific, that kind of real grounding of horror in the day-to-day, I don't think you really see before that. You see so, so the pr- day-to-day being explained in horror myths, but you don't see the day-to-day being connected back to horror in the same way that you do in the Victorian horror period. That I so think that it is quite a... a Unusual period. So, 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 previous, um, like, like, for want of a better word, you know, monsters and horror, uh, horror fiction in general was, was, literally on the order of the things that go bump in the night. I mean, was was it? Um, so, so, so it's, it's, it sounds like you're saying that the that uh, it changed from being you know, these these fantastic tales to kind of more. I know this is a kind of urban horror is a relatively recent resurgence, but is a similar kind of feel, you know, taking horror to people's everyday lives as opposed to it all being, you know, at a remove, you know, magical pixies and stuff, or... Um, I think what I'm saying is that at the time, um, it was an unusual point in history where the scientific community and the the educated public were both speaking the same language. Oh, okay. Um, and it was it was a mean really unusual point in time where you could combine these sort of scientific fears with sort of what was already fearful in the public eye you know you could combine these new scientific terms with the public fear without the the two languages being excessively disparate if okay. that makes sense so 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 so, 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 so these days you know we we have you know we, we might have 28 days later it originates in a science lab with you our favorite scientists exactly the, the the zombie strain originates in science like uh-huh. but but it's not really based in science, you know. There, there's no je- there's no actual fear of science aside from a sort of big the man in the white coat, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, the there is there is no actual there's no real understanding of day to day science that makes us fearful. Whereas as we're looking at before, you know, this this act of you know d- the stealing bodies for dissection for you know looking at um, catalepsy. These are day-to-day scientific activities that cause people to genuinely fear the scientific profession. Oh, interesting. So whereas now science is used as a kind of a catalyst for, um, like, horror stories and things and in, in popular fiction at the time it, it was the horror story itself exactly almost. it's you know it's it, it was more that um that it was a 
time when we were genuinely turning up stuff that was terrifying in day-to-day -day life and that science itself was having to do terrifying things mm. on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you, you read any sort of explanation of um, uh, surgical procedures in the Victorian period they're horrifying. They're, they're more horrifying than many a sort of slasher film these days, mm. you know, removing a kidney stone without, um, without, <laughs> without anaesthetic or clean knives. Yeah, well. Uh. So, but it, it kind of puts, it puts a lot of the modern... Um, political debates about um, me medical practice into perspective, whereas now there's, you know, debate over the ethics of ex animal testing or uh, stem cell research. At the time, it was the ethics of killing people and using their bodies for science. Absolutely, but the the same kind of um, uh, motifs are still used to describe the medical profession when we're fearful of them. It's it's still playing God. It's still surgeons sort of um, performing unnatural acts on mm. the human body. You know, we still have those. Um, the lingua franca that we were using for gothic horror in the late Victorian period, we are still using those to describe discomfort with the medical profession. Um, oh. It was a period of time when the power shifted um, towards the medical profession, but also that the opinion of the public changed that it wasn't just outright scared of the medical profession because it might cause immediate pain, but of the medical profession as a body, as a professional body, rather than as an individual right, who might right. hurt you because you might have to have, say, a tooth removed. It became a fear of the professional body and the acts that it could uh, take as a body across... Across, uh, across, to, across to, to, to humanity and society uh, as opposed to... Across the individuals yeah. rather than just of an individual. Oh, OK, well, I think that's a good point to move on to our next track. And um, then I think it will be our last link of the show. So send in any questions you've got so we can answer them. <laughs>
Science of Fiction. It's your last chance to send in any questions you have over the email at studio at camfm.co.uk or through the online web player. Uh, that song we just played is The Blood is Love by Queens of the Stone Age and I I know because we were chatting about it during whilst it was playing in the studio that part of it is to do obviously the blood infection we were talking about with Dracula but also it, it links into an inherited disease as well. Okay, yeah, so uh, so one of the other important things in uh, Victorian Gothic literature is the increasing understanding of inheritance and that whole sort of Darwinian concept of evolution, um, which fed into this very specific understanding of criminality um, used by um, authors such as Lombroso uh, to describe uh, the criminal type. Um, and a couple of very specific uh, terms used in Victorian literature and Victorian scientific understanding. Uh, so we're talking about degeneration and recapitulation. Degeneration was the concept that evolution could simplify as well as advance. This is, I must admit, talking about a very social understanding of evolution rather than a scientific one. So, 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 so kind of parental conditioning or of... Uh, no, no, an actual belief that, um, that the individual could come out at a previous stage of evolution. So oh. come out so so that um, th- this is like recapitulation recapitulation was talking about um, that the uh, the embryo or the, the sort of the, the, the child would um, be uh, would undergo the stages of evolution in the womb oh, and if prematurely born would come out at an earlier stage of evolution so what? a character like Dracula would literally be a throwback to an earlier stage of evolution oh, because he was so old so he would literally be at an earlier stage, and that criminals were—they—they they weren't fully developed in the wo- in the womb, so they were at a sort of a more. Um, ape-like stage of evolution so this and you're, you're looking at the, the physiognomy sort of aspect, so the, the, sort of the, the shape of the forehead and so forth and what, I'm trying to infer criminality based on head measurements or whatever? Or? Exactly huh. um, which seems completely absurd to us these days but but you are looking also at so, so there's this kind of this huge misunderstanding of the concept of inheritance, evolution and genetic disability position. So when was um, the time she written by H.G. Wells? Is that Victorian or is that a lot later or earlier? Because in that he it talks about the degeneration of society into the Morlocks and the Eloi. Um, it's certainly influenced by the, the same kind of scientific backdrop. Um, there's a bit in there, I know it's removed in one version of the book, but he got asked to write it where he eventually goes even further into the future and finds a degenerate creature which he decides somehow is humanity in the far future. And it then comes back and deci- discovers it's been eaten by another animal. Well, to be honest, you only have to look at stuff like Planet of the Apes these days and you're looking at similar motifs, you know. We, we haven't come that far in our in our literary themes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, but it, it's, it's a scary thought, right? To to, to feel on top, you know, to, to, to for society to regress or you know to, to, ha- to become more criminal 
as a society or as as people based on these factors outside your control it, it is i think the the scariest thing in the victorian themes is looking at things like um more like uh, dr jekyll and mr hyde or the turn of the screw which uh, take that concept of inheritance or intrinsic um devolution within the self and th those even today are absolutely terrifying you know you read the turn of the screw, screw and you're not scared then you know you, you don't have much imagination um, and those are based much more on the idea of um, uh, sort of inheritance of something psychological something genetic that you can't see you can't observe but a sort of a, a mental taint a, a mental illness as we describe it these days but 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 but, but with some of the, i get the impression there's sort of more of the language of describing these as you know inheriting evil as opposed to negative character traits or oh, oh absolutely they, they're still very much described as um i think sort of in uh, in test of the devils and hand of baskervilles um both both involve scenes where a character is shown a portrait of the uh, uh, one of the relatives of the individual and they're described of how evil this individual was Looks and they both they, they both look very much like the individual who is supposed to have something sort of intrinsically wrong with them so it's you know it's it really doesn't ascribe to our kind of under our modern understanding of mental illness but they are still quite gripping portrayals of mental illness mm. even if it wasn't well understood at the time even if it was described as a sort of evil mm. uh, evil poison that was passed on with the blood rather than it being a you know hereditary mental illness or simply something that you know might be a product of the environment that is passed on through the ages well i'm sorry so i think we're gonna have to end it there because we've actually overrun slightly but i was enjoying it too much so um dory thanks for coming and will again thanks for turning up always a pleasure i'm not going to be on the air next week because i'm just having a little break but um the week after we should have dr amy milton who is a neuroscientist and we'll be talking about memory and uh, we'll be looking at movies like total recall and finding nemo very similar movies so um thanks for listening and i'm um, sorry if we couldn't answer your question we obviously get a few in that we can't but um ha have a great week <laughs>